All right, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Uh, it's in, Colossians is in the Bible, so you'll find it there. And if you don't know where to look, it's in the table of contents, and so snag that. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to walk back to the back and pick up one. Um, we'd love to let you have one of those if you don't own one uh, or just borrow one. Uh, as Bob, that's Bob, oh, are we on? Is this, uh, hmm. Uh, is it five? Okay, let's see here. I'm going to unplug it. And I'm going to plug... Oh, well, that's probably part of the problem. So, as we were talking about, uh, the voice that you guys heard on the, the video was Bob Leckel. And Bob is a guy here at NBC. And we had, what we had Bob do was... Let's see if this works. Boom! What we had Bob do was uh, to read, really just read out of the, the first chapter of the book of Colossians and just kind of segments of that. So what you were hearing him narrate was really just the scripture and coming from this angle of understanding what it is that Paul was trying to convey to the church in Colossae. Um, we, we learned last week was our first week in the series we call Palette that what Paul was trying to get, get across to this group is, man, you guys got so many things that are right on the money, but there's this you're kind of coming apart at the seams, and it's not because there's this terrible, terrible teaching alone in your church, or these terrible, terrible things happening. You read other things that Paul's written, and, and he's addressing stuff like that. Colossi's doing pretty good, but they're just off enough that they're going to start spinning out of control, and, the, and where they're off is just slightly is on who Jesus was and how foundational he is. And so what, what Paul's going to do through the book of Colossians is he's going to talk about how, you know, a lot of times we make, as we talked about last week, foundational our relationship. Like our husband, our wife, our boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, this, this is foundational. My whole world sits on top of this. And I love Jesus. I love Jesus too. But this is foundational. Or, or you know, the way that my professional career, like my work, my grades, um, whether or not my boss appreciates me or not, that's foundational. Like my world, if, if I'm not appreciated at work or if I'm not getting promoted at work, everything just is rocked in my world because this is foundational. If I'm not working, this is foundational. Um, and there's also just my happiness. My happiness is foundational. Man, things are great in my world as long as this is found, you know, and I love Jesus too. And what Paul is saying is that any one of those things that, are, that we make foundational that aren't Jesus work for a while. They work as long as they work. And then when they don't work, which inevitably they, they will not work, all of a sudden, we just go to pieces. And instead, what we need to recognize is that Jesus is our foundation. That just like a pallet which is designed to hold weight, just like a pallet which is designed to hold tons and tons of boxes or items that are on top of it, if he's the foundation, if Jesus is that in our life, all of a sudden, we go to those relationships and we say, okay, Jesus, you're the filter for how I interact with all those relationships. And so then I put the relationships on top. Jesus, you're the way that I, I get my peace and my, my security. And even my work ethic, I get that from you. I'm putting my job on top of that. And you know, happiness is awesome too. But I know that if happiness is, is my foundation alone, I'm going to make decisions that are away from you because in the moment, I'm going to choose to do what makes me happy that might be way far away from you. So I'm going to take even the happiness, I'm going to put that on. And so as we go through the book of Colossians, we're going to see that if Jesus is indeed like a pallet in our life, if he is indeed like that foundational piece, how he impacts everything that we stack on top. And so today, we're gonna, we went from chapter one last week, and now we're in chapter two. And the, what I titled this is that the, these are the three people in my life that I listen to more than I listen to Jesus. These are three voices, three individuals um, that, that I have that I listen to more than I listen to Jesus. And just as a spoiler alert, 
these aren't real people. More often than not, sometimes they are, but more often than not, they're, they're voices in my head. And I'm not crazy. Some people think I am, but I'm not crazy. These voices in my head are more things that I'm telling myself over and over again. And the three people that, that are speaking into me are people that um, really are taking me off from what God wants instead of where he's guiding me towards. And these are the same three people Paul's talking about in chapter two. The first person is this, the inner Liam Neeson. The first person I listen to more than Jesus is the inner Liam Neeson. Now, you may know Liam Neeson because he was a, he's a really phenomenal actor. He was in, um, he was in Schindler's List, and he's, he did a f- just incredible job in Schindler's List. But he'll never be known by the actor who's in Schindler's List, will he? No, he'll be known for another set of movies that he's been in, which are? Which are? Taken. It's in every service. <laughs> Taken. Now, I have to admit, I, am the only, I think I'm the only pastor that has yet to see one of the Takens. Um, I, I thought that maybe I, there was more pastors who hadn't seen one of the Taken flicks, because there are three of them now. Um, but even Pastor Dave came up to me last night. I said, like, oh yeah, I saw Taken. And he's like, he's like, it's really violent. But I saw it. I'm like, okay, well, I'm behind you then. I'm sorry. But Taken, if you, if you, understand, if you know what the movie is about, it's got Liam Neeson in it. Liam Neeson is a former CIA, CIA operative. And, he, and this is all stuff that I've gleaned from the amazing resource that is Wikipedia. He is someone who has a, he's an individual with a certain set of skills as a former CIA operative. If you do something to him, he will make you pay. And, and so the, by the, the title of the movie, we understand that the movie is all about this, the fact that something or someone is taken from Liam Neeson. And who is that in the first movie? His daughter. He's Albanian terrorists or something come in and they want to traffic her. And so they, they kidnap his daughter. And so for the rest of the movie, Liam Neeson is hunting down to get his daughter back because that which he loved, the person, the object of his affection has been stolen out of his life. And so totally going to kill the ending. He gets her back and the good guys win. And everyone's like, yay, everything's awesome until Taken 2. Taken 2 comes out and all of a sudden Liam Neeson loses somebody else. Who's taken from him now? His ex-wife. Bum, bum, bum. And all of a sudden you start seeing a thread, a common ground, something that's like a pattern here. The pattern is stay away from Liam Neeson. If you're in a relationship with this guy, you are going to get taken away. You're gone. It's, it's out of there. And, and again, that movie apparently ends, I think, happily or something. But there's a Taken 3 out now. I don't even know what it's about. I mean, it's, I think it's about his dog gets taken. But it's, whatever it is, the bottom line is Liam Neeson is someone that the object of his affection is constantly and consistently ripped from its bearings and gone. It's taken away. And what Paul is saying is that's exactly how it is for you, church in Colossae with Jesus. See, see, Jesus is the object of your affection. You, have, you had a relationship with him. In fact, in the beginning of chapter 2, he says this. Go ahead and look at the first couple verses. He says, I want you to know, verse 1 of chapter 2, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may be deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit, and I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. What he's saying is this. You guys are Christians. I'm not telling you guys, you guys are followers of Jesus. I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know. But every single time in Colossae, this new philosophy comes to town, you jump on board and you're like, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe this Jesus that I really, really love isn't 
that big of a deal. Maybe he's cool like an attachment to this other philosophy and Jesus gets taken away from you. The person who you hold so de- dearly, just like Liam Neeson, he's gone, taken. Or, and, and sometimes you get him back, but then there's a taken too, and boom, he's gone again. And, and this, rela- this concept of having this wish-washy, up-and-down relationship is something that plagued the church in Colossae. And so this is what he says to them in the next couple of verses. Look at verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith that is as you were taught, and overflowing with what? Thankfulness. That's important for later. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Another, another way of translating that is religion. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive religion which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Here's what Paul doesn't do. Paul doesn't say, you know what, church? You guys are buying some really junky, garbagey philosophies and some junky, garbagey religions. And you're trying to mesh those in with following Jesus and it just doesn't work. It's like Lego, like having, did anyone grow up with playing with Lego blocks? And then your parents got you the cheapo version, and you're like, oh, this is cool. They're going to fit together, and they don't. just makes you so frustrated. You know what? That anger? Anyway, um, he's saying that that's kind of, he says, you know, you're, you're trying to make Jesus work with these other philosophies, and it doesn't work. And, and, and more than that, these other philosophies are making you lose confidence in who Jesus is. And so instead of, instead of talking to them and saying, here, I'm going to go ahead and debunk this whole concept of what you're, what you're buying and what you're believing in, Point A, point B, point C. He doesn't do that. I think one of the reasons he doesn't do that is because Paul's ignorant. He doesn't know completely what, what it is that they're believing in. He's never been to Colossae. He's just heard bits and pieces. And so he doesn't jump into the ring and say, this is why what you're saying is stupid. This is why what you're believing is wrong, because he's ignorant of a lot of that. Instead, he, sa- he almost gives a, a humble perspective saying, listen, I don't completely understand what it is that you're into but I know how to correct it. The, the, the base, the foundational point is Jesus. I'm going to tell you more about Jesus, and that's going to correct any of the off perspectives that you have. When I was 17 years old, um, I had a teacher, and uh, this teacher, Mr. Schmidt, he was someone who um, was, he was, a fine, he was an Algebra two teacher, and he was, he was, a, he was a fine guy. He was, he was totally okay, and every, you know, he wasn't a, a mean teacher. But when he found out that I was a Christian, he wanted to, like, really grill me and pepper me with questions. Like, okay, you need to, Errol, you mind staying after class? Sure. So I'd stay after class, and he would just pepper me with questions. Like, you know, you say you believe in this God, and you believe in this book, but there's so many contradictions in the Bible. I mean, here's a couple of, uh, that, and he gave me contradictions in the Bible. Here's some things that don't add up in the Bible. And are you aware of the fact that there's a recent study that says that faith is not something that's a tangible, actual thing that people have. It's, it's just a chemical reaction in one's mind. And you're actually born with it. I mean, you're born with the ability to do this or not. It's not something that's actual. It's just kind of a physiological, biochemical thing that takes place in your head. Did you know that, Earl? Did you know that there's some evidence about Jesus, about this, this, and this, this? And all of a sudden, like, he's just like data dumping all these things. And I had no clue about any of them. And all of a sudden, I was listening to that voice of Liam Neeson in me that was just ready to see this Jesus. Now, this guy was well-read, okay? He was coming up against me with all guns blazing. He was a well-read individual. And I was well-read. 
in like Spider-Man comic books. That was about it. That's, that was as well-read as I was. But this guy was well-read. And so I, what could I say to him except for Mr. Schmidt? I don't know. I mean, you got a lot of, you got a lot of information there, a lot of, a lot of data there. I, I've, I've never heard some of that, and some of it I don't, I don't know the answer to. But I do know Jesus. I know that he died on the cross for my sins. I know that he rose again. And I know that because not only do I read that, but I also see it in, in my life, and I've seen him do stuff in people's life that I know. And so you can give me all that evidence that you want. And I'll, I promise you, for the re- as long as, if I live to be 85 years old, I'll be trying to figure out answers to the questions that you gave. But I, I, I'm not going to argue against them right now. All I'm going to say to you is basically, I, I believe in Jesus. He is the point. And he's more powerful than my ability to argue this with you. A cool part of the story that I didn't tell on the end, uh, I didn't tell Saturday services, but a cool part of the story is that that about seven years later, six, seven years later, I was in a, um, I was coming, going into a movie theater with my family. I was back from college, and I ran into Mr. Schmidt exiting the movie theater. And Mr. Schmidt's exiting the movie theater, and as he's walking out, I'm like, it was one of those weird, awkward moments of seeing your teacher, you know, outside of class. You're like, ah. And then I, I'm thinking back to everything that he was talking about, all those questions that he peppered me with. And I didn't want to tell him that I went to college to learn how to be a pastor because then he would be like, oh, sweet. Now let's really get into it. And I was like kind of getting all, getting all anxious and antsy about this. And I said, hey, Mr. Schmidt, how's it going? He's like, oh, Errol, good. I said, what's new? And he's like, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually here uh, seeing a movie with my small group. I just started going to this church. And like, I, I'm in this small group. And I'm like, no way. And I wanted to say, you were such a jerk to me, <laughs> but I didn't. I was just like, that's awesome. That's so cool. Now, whenever, whenever I have been in a place of seeing a moment like that happen in my, in my life, I get this like, kind of like mini ulcer. The last time I, I remember having this or a, a, in recent past was, was initially when Dan Brown's book came out, The Da Vinci Code. Anyone read The Da Vinci Code? Okay. I read The Da Vinci Code. That thing is a page turner. <laughs> Jesus was married. And uh, not only that, his child is the, the Holy Grail. That's what he meant by the Holy Grail. And the Holy Grail lives in Europe somewhere. And like all this stuff. And, oh, and this person that we're talking to is actually one of the descendants of Jesus. And, and it goes through this whole thing. And it, what it lays out kind of, uh, the underlying messaging is communicating, you know, Jesus, Jesus was a man. He's not really God. It's kind of like the incarnation was a half pseudo incarnation. That God didn't really become man, but that God really inspired a bunch of cool stuff to this man, Jesus, who got married and had a kid and blah, blah, blah. And as I'm reading this, the ulcer that's starting to surface in my heart is like, oh man, what if people believe this stuff? And I start to like really worry. Now about three or m- months later, all these non-believing uh, uh, historians surface the fact that a ton of Dan Brown's information that he was using as, as source reference material was just bunk. It wasn't, was inaccurate. And so it was a great fictitious work, but it wasn't an accurate historical fiction or actual historical work, um, which was great. So I'm like, yes, Christianity's back on the rails. And then you, you fast forward a couple years and you have uh, Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and a bunch of these guys who write books for what's called the New Atheism, basically communicating and conveying how dumb it is to believe in, in any God, let alone Jesus. And then that ulcer kind of comes back in my stomach like, oh no, what if people believe this? These guys are really smart. They're smarter than than Mr. Schmidt. And all of a sudden we have to realize the very same thing that Paul did is what we have. See, our response to that voice, the inner Liam Neeson that has that Jesus so easily taken away, 
comes back to instead listening to the very words of Jesus. What did Jesus say about himself? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so when I'm in a situation where I'm presented with this philosophy or fad religion or new atheism or whatever that's coming across the line, I'm not going to be sweating it. Paul wasn't sweating it. And I'm not going to pretend like I know all the answers to what they're saying, because I may not. More often than not, I don't. I don't know all the answers to what they're saying. I don't know all the great rebuttals. I want to learn and talk to these people for sure, because I want them to know the same Jesus that I know. But my ultimate defense comes back to who Jesus is. I bet my life on him, not my ability to defend every intricacy that people have against him. He is, he is the, the resurrection, and that reality is what I hold my life on and what I hang my hat on. The second person that we need to, uh, that I listen to more than Jesus is the bucket filler person, the bucket filler voice within me. And this is somebody who um, comes to a point of saying, we need to do something. Jesus has done a bunch of stuff in our life, but we need to do something more. Take a look at, uh, let's read back in verse 9, and we'll do the verses following that. For in Christ, all of the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you've been given what? fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. That, um, that word right there for fullness, that, that for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you've been given the fullness that word is a word called pleroma in Greek. Pleroma basically means this overwhelming, overabundant um, fullness. This, this, it's totally full. And basically, Paul's using it from, in the sense of realizing that we're absolute need, total need. Um, we have this vacuum that needs to be filled, and the only person that can fill that is God. And, and it, it's not just being filled with anything. It's being filled with the purity that comes from God because we're broken. And so what, what Paul starts to affirm is this reality that, you know, Jesus wasn't like God-ish or God-like. He was God. That he always has been God. And that all of the full... Oh, we have a break. Oh, that's very fascinating. Does anyone... Can I borrow someone's hand? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> all right. Let's go ahead and fill it up to there. <laughs> In Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And so it's this idea of being full over, over, and over, and over, and being filled up. But here's the problem. What we end up doing is we end up saying, you know what, that's great, but God, you don't, I've done a lot of stuff that's messed up and broken and wrong. Broken and wrong. And so what we end up doing is saying, I need to add to that. You know, Lord Jesus, if I, I know that this, I know that you came into my life and you brought a whole lot of fullness, but I've done some messed up stuff. I just need to pay this back to you. I, I just need to do just a little bit that's going to help you understand how important and how vast you are. And so what we do, this is going to work perfect actually, is we try to add to this. Nope, I still feel empty. Um, 
you know what, Lord, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you how serious I am because I'm going to show you how serious I am about the salvation you gave me because I know that you probably want a little bit of sweat equity in this relationship. I got to do some of the work. I know you do that on the cross and stuff, but action has to take place in my life. So I'm going to, I'm going to show up at church even in the snowpocalypse of 2015. That's what I'm going to do. And so we add that to the whole mix. And then we start to continue to add, you know what, Lord, I, I keep on screwing up though. I say bad words. I say, have bad thoughts. And so I'm just going to keep on adding. And I'm just going to keep on, you know, sometimes I say things and think things that aren't right. So, but I know that you did this, but I'm just going to go ahead and keep on adding to all the stuff that you've done in my life. Now, here's the problem with this. Outside of the fact that we have a hole in the side, what ends up happening in a Christian's life that has that philosophy is this is not filled. This is not fulfilled. A lot of times you can have Christians that are all, if there isn't a hole here, you can have it completely full up to the top. But so much of the stuff on the inside is built and based on themselves and their own work. They're not fulfilled. In fact, if you ask them what saves you, they're like, well, you know, Jesus saves me and the fact that I'm doing a lot of stuff for Jesus. Jesus saves me and the fact that I'm, 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 I'm doing tons of stuff at church, that's what saves me. And that is a bucket filler mentality. A bucket filler will never be complete. They might be wet, but they're not filled up. They're not fulfilled. The only fulfillment comes from the reality of knowing that Jesus has done the work. That's why Paul uses the awkward concept of circumcision. Whenever the Bible starts talking about circumcision, I'm like, oh man, really? But for the first century, this was a big deal to them. Because if you're Jewish, this was like your indication that you're on the inside. You're on the, you're on the good guy's side. You're on the winning side of the whole thing. I mean, that was like your, your physical reminder. I'm in the tribe. I'm in the club. Me and God are good. And so whenever someone is a Gentile and they're starting to come into the faith, the Jews are like, okay, well, if you really want to be accepted by God, if you really want to be saved, you got to get circumcised. And the 34-year-old's like, say what? No, seriously, that's what God, and Paul's like, what are you doing? Don't you understand that what Jesus did filled it up completely? Why are you trying to add to it? And so what he says is, people we're circumcised by Christ's, what Christ did on the cross. That, that cut away, nothing from our physical nature, but from our soul, the hardness of heart against God. He, he took that away. He stripped it away. And so now we have an openness with him. And just to make the point that this is not something that we could attain by adding, he goes on from there and says this in verse 13. While you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. So he doesn't say, you know, while you were really, really working, when you were working on polishing up your, your life, you were starting to say less profanity, you were being nicer to your family, you were, you were actually um, not cheating at work. And, and when that happened, all of a sudden God saved you because he saw how much effort you were putting into it. And he was just like, yes, way to go. Now I'll save you. Now you're saved. You can go to heaven now. You're not going to go to hell. He says, while you were dead, while you were dead, when you could do nothing for it, he made you alive. He goes on from there to say he forgave our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. I don't know if you've ever been through a period or you're currently in a period where you're in over your head in debt. Like finances are crazy. And they're not like crazy bad, but you're, in, you're like underwater, underwater. It's like if there's underwater, you're like below the underwater, underwater part. And what Paul is saying is you are underwater water. You, you are absolutely in debt. And it's not like God is, is, Jesus is not coming up to you and saying, I'm looking at your debt, this massive IOU to me that you have, 
And I, what he's not saying is, you know what? It doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Just, just crumple it up and throw it away. He says that instead, what Jesus did was this. This separates you from me. And you can never pay it off. There's nothing you could possibly do. There's no amount of good deeds that can possibly pay it off. You can't do this. And this distances you and me. And so I'm going to take it from you. And I'm going to nail it to the cross. I'm going to take it away from you. I'm going to do what you can't do. Because I love you. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The last section is saying this. You, you first century Colossians who live in this Roman Empire, you might feel like this world is stacked against you, like all the cards are just stacked against you. The, empire, the government's against you, that your neighbors are against you. Sometimes the circumstances of life are against you. And in that moment, you're thinking, where in the world is God in this situation? Everything about the world, both physically and metaphysically, seems like it's, it's stacked against me. And Paul's saying that's absolutely true. This world is stacked against you. In this world, you're going to have massive difficulty. You're going to have massive trouble. And it's going to be consistent till the day you die. Things are going to seem stacked against you. But what we see in the cross is that that tells us that it's not the final word, that those injustices, those problems are not the final word. The answer to the, to the bucket filler is to be a person that listens to the works of Jesus. Not only do we listen to the words, what Jesus says about himself, but we actually look at his resume. And Paul fleshes it out in, in, the, in that section. He says that because of the cross, all of a sudden we have a different reality. That yeah, we were dead. We were totally dead. We couldn't do anything towards God, but he made us through the cross alive that we were indebted. There was no possibility for us to, to pay this back. But through the cross, he paid it. He was the one who took care of it for us. That yes, the system is stacked against us and it will always be as long as we're on this planet. But the cross says that's not the end of the story. That he is going to humiliate the system. That he is, he is literally going to spike the ball of, of, of our human history with what happened on the cross. I've talked with my wife, Julie, after coming back from Haiti, and she says, you know, the hardest thing for me to grapple with is reading those passages in the Bible, like in, in Psalms, about how God um, takes care of the orphan, that he, he upholds the fatherless, how God loves the marginalized and the outcasts. And then you walk through the slums of Soleil, and you see these kids that have nothing these are orphans and they're, 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 they would die for, for, for a bite to eat or for a drink of water. They have nothing. And you go over to, to some second or third grader in Shanahan who's far from God and they've got everything. Where's the justice there? How, could that, how can you make that right? How does God uphold the orphan and the fatherless when you see that? What Paul is saying is, in this world, there's going to be injustice. Like Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. This is not the end of the story. Justice will be, be found. And through the cross, we see that reality surfaced. This is how we avoid falling into this. Because what this is, what the bucket filler is, this is coming from a place of shame. I've done too much wrong. I've, I'm too guilty. And I'm coming from a place of shame by trying to pay God back, try to fill that up, which leads us actually to the next person we should avoid listening to, which we listen to more than Jesus, which is the shadow worshiper. 
The shadow worshiper is basically this. If you, if you get through this stage and you're like totally like all on board with the fact that, yeah, you know what? I need to pay God back. You know, that's what my life needs to be. I've got so much guilt and wrong that I've done. I need to pay God back. This goes from an, if you don't deal with this, if you don't recognize that, no, Jesus is the one that fills us up, not our, our own works, then what, what ends up happening if you don't deal with that is that you start to, that, that internalized shame and guilt becomes organized and professional and you start to throw it up on other people in judgment. The shadow worshiper, we can go ahead and read in the first couple of verses of the next section. Um, this is what Paul is trying to help them avoid becoming. He's saying, if you don't deal with this, you're gonna become a shadow worshiper. Take a look. Therefore, verse 16, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or what you drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or the Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now he's talking about Jewish festivals there. Is he saying that Jewish festivals are evil? Is he saying that that Jewish festivals are sinful? No. He's just saying that, that they're not necessary. He's saying, don't let anyone judge you by these things because these things were a shadow of the things to come. The fullness, however, is found in Christ. What he's saying here is this. What we tend to do as a people is we tend to start to want to worship the shadow instead of the object that's illuminated. Let's just talk about this wonderful um, fake flower. Let's say that this is what I really wanted to study I would study this. I would look at the illumination, the beauty of this. What I wouldn't do is focus and fixate on the shadow of it. Oh my goodness, that is a beautiful shadow. That's just, I'm going to learn everything I can about this shadow. You know what? I, I could almost smell it. It's so beautiful. Paul is saying that's what we end up doing when it comes to our faith in, in the church. See, the, the church in Colossae was doing this. They had this fixation and they had this hold on these Jewish beliefs and some of these New Age beliefs. And, and when he's sp- speaking specifically about the Jewish ones, he was saying, you know what? You, you guys, all this stuff in Judaism was aiming at something. It was aiming to illuminate who Jesus was, who Jesus is, because now we have him in, our, in the fullness. Hebrews 1.3 talks about how he is the radiance of God. He is the one, all the prophets spoke in part, but Jesus is the full fulfillment. And so if you're fixated and focused on the shadow, you're going to have a blurry picture of the actual. Now, he, he puts in, into this whole mix, this whole concept of tradition, because he mentions some things that are not bad. Every church, every tradition has tradition. You know, you, you may have come from a, a more traditional church that was like, like, you know, I don't know. We kind of like can stereotype people who come from a traditional church like, oh, it must be hymns. And can it be four stanzas? And we could think that's traditional. But the reality is, is that you, you, you could take any 19 or 20-year-old who loves uh, maybe Hillsong United or Bethel or something, and that's all they love to listen to. And you can watch how traditional they are when you take away that thing that they love, that that's their connection to Jesus. That's how they worship Jesus. You take that away, and all of a sudden, wait a minute, it must be Hillsong United with electric guitar. You don't have to be 99 years old to be a traditionalist. Everyone is a traditionalist because we fall in love with the shadow. This was helpful for us when we were, some of you, when we first came, became Christians, or recently, the thing that really connected us to Jesus, this thing is so powerful and important, but when we start to fixate on this over this, 
we get ourselves in trouble. Here's another way. Certain church traditions, this is the way that they do things. For example, we, we, have, we take communion once a month. Some churches take communion every week. Now, communion is something that forecasts who Jesus is, right? It's something that forecasts who, who Jesus is and all about him. What we oftentimes do is say, you know what? Our church, our church does it this way. This really is the only right way. In fact, all of the other shadows out there are wrong, and this is the only way to become a Christian. This is the only way to be saved, to do with it our way, our tradition, our theological bent. This is the only way. And what Paul is saying is, don't do that. Because as soon as you start using the shadow, the thing that points to Jesus as the prerequisite for faith, you end up becoming that judgmental person that's adding to salvation when the only thing that is, that is the key to salvation is Jesus. He is the essence. He is the one who, who grows in us something. We also do it with this. We also take the very things that, that Jesus does in our life. That once Jesus comes into your life, he starts to transform us. And that, that, that's a moral transformation. It's a, it's a worldview transformation. And we'll take those worldviews and some of those moral things and we'll start to put them in here and say, this is salvation. This is a prerequisite. If someone is doing this, they're saved. If someone is not doing this, clearly they're not saved. When this is not the prerequisite to salvation, Jesus is. The more that we get fixated and focused in worshiping the shadow, the more that we realize that it is our own shadow that we're worshiping. We're simply projecting what we want and saying, this is God. When Paul is saying, turn your direction over here, we need to be focusing on the object of our salvation. And that's not a tradition. It's not a pattern. It's not even a moral code. It's Jesus. Amen? One of the things that we also see um, take place is that, that when, when that ends up, when we become shadow-focused and shadow-centric rather than Christocentric, is that the world starts to look and say, that doesn't look attractive to me at all. A guy who wrote a book called Unchristian named David Kinneman said, what are Christians known for? Outsiders think, uh, think our moralizing, our condemnations, and our attempts to draw boundaries around everything. Even if these standards are accurate and biblical, they seem to be all we have to offer. And our lives are a poor advertisement for the standards. We have set the game board to register lifestyle points. Then we're surprised to be trapped by our mistakes. The truth is, we have invited the hypocrite image. If we are communicating that what salvation is, is the shadow, this style, this tradition, this theological bent, whatever, that is the salvation, we miss the point, according to Paul, when the point all along is Jesus. Jesus is the point. He is the one that we need to worship. He is the object of our salvation. And so where we avoid becoming someone who's just a flimsy believer by listening to the very words of Jesus. We become someone who thinks that it's all on us, our own works, by listening to the very works of Jesus. We become someone who's avoiding being a shadow worshiper by listening to the very woo of Jesus, the fact that he is calling us into a relationship, wooing us towards himself, bringing us to himself, and not simply to some shadow. He's not trying to get us into some religious system or sect or something where we're all of a sudden we're doing enough disciplined things so that we look a certain way. What he's trying to do is bring us into relationship with him. And when he is the epicenter, all of a sudden from that point out, transformation happens. In the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about Jesus and the fake me and then Jesus and the real me. Because once Jesus is the foundation, there's some things that you start to see and it's awesome. But, though, but Paul makes great pains and great labors to make sure that we understand that we're not going to get the cart before the horse. The epicenter, the start of it all is Jesus. He is the focus. 
not the shadow, not the aftermath. He uh, continues on in this passage by saying this, uh, for the person who, who doesn't do that, verse 19, he has lost connection with the head, which is Jesus, from whom the whole body is supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews. And it grows and it grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it? Do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use. These are all based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul really got a bad rap for being an anti-organized religion type of guy. Um, if you have had any friends that have ever said, yeah, you know what, I, I kind of like Jesus, but I, I'm not a big fan of organized religion. Paul would say, yeah, me neither. Sometimes it can be such a pain when, you get pe- when all of us, every church system and every, in, in human history has become fixated on the shadow. We forget the source of the, of the light. What Paul would say is this, circumcision, is that something that's required for salvation? No. Is that, if that's something, these other traditions, Sabbaths, celebrations, are these something required for salvation? No. If those traditions help you have a better view of Jesus and a connection with Jesus, great. But don't impose that upon anyone else. Instead, recognize that the thing that we're trying to impose on everyone else is the hope and the good news of Jesus. First and foremost, he is the one who is our source. Uh, Tim Keller put it this way. You can run from God either by breaking his rules or by keeping them. The former says, God doesn't own me. The latter says, God owes me. What we're called to as Christians is to recognize that the hope we have is in a Jesus that doesn't simply do all this work and say that you're messed up and you need to be forgiven, but instead calls us into a relationship with him. When he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. In closing, um, I would love to say that the, the three people that I just mentioned, that those voices will not be in your head forever. Truth be told, those things are going to be continually bombarding you throughout life. The voices of, of, of the, the person trying to take you away from the Lord or to diffuse who Jesus is. The voice that says you inside that I, I need to do something to pay this back to God and, and have some sweat equity in my salvation. The voice that says, you know what? My way, my shadow is the way to salvation rather than Jesus himself first and foremost. Those voices are going to be all, all, always be there. And I don't think they're ever going to be completely silenced, but there is a trick. And the trick I've discovered is from, through parenting. Um, how many of you are parents in here? Okay. How many of you, even if you're not a parent, you'd say you're kind of a kid person? Okay. A couple of us, yeah. Um, I love kids. I love kids. But I didn't realize how annoying they were till I was a parent. <laughs> and I didn't realize how awful the design, strategic design of a minivan was as an echo chamber of chaos. My wife and I, we get in the car. We're like, okay, we're going to go to Walmart. We're going. And we're going. And we have four kids in the car. And they're like, you're, they're hitting each other. And they're like crossing lines that they told each other not to cross. And mom, dad, mom, dad. Just over and over and over again. And it's just like, and I, I, and I react. I find myself reacting. And I find myself reacting like my dad. And I, I just turn around and blah, 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 blah. And then it's quiet. And I'm like, that worked for 30 seconds. And then it's right back. And I realize that it's futile to try to completely silence them. They're, they're going to keep on coming. 
And so I learned a trick, and, it, and the trick is two words, and I want to encourage you with this, and the, the trick is this, white noise. All of a sudden, I allow all these crazy things, once I realize that there's no real way to stop it, I'm going to let it just blur into white noise, and I'm going to focus on the fact that I'm going to Walmart. <laughs> I'm going to Walmart, and there's nothing that they can do to stop me from going to Walmart. The hands are on the 10 and the 2, and I'm like going to Walmart. Oh, look, there's some beautiful countryside along the way. And I'm seeing it as I'm going to Walmart. I'm focusing on the destination. As followers of Jesus, we're not focusing on a destination. That's not how we silence these voices. We're focusing on the person, the person of Jesus. Because in the midst of the difficulty and the chaos and those, vo- those things that are needling you, if you continue to return to the person work and words of Jesus, the reality that he's calling you into relationship, and that is your starting point. All of a sudden, everything else starts to be put into perspective. Amen? Amen. Let's live that out. Stand and let's uh, close in prayer. Lord Jesus, I ask that you help each and every person here make it home safely. Lord, I ask that they have an awesome afternoon, whether they're watching football or they're just hanging out with family members or they're just um, excited about the commercials or whatever they're doing today. I pray that you allow them to just have a, a blessed day. But above and beyond that, I pray that you help each one of them have a difficult time shaking the concept of the fact that you are the epicenter of our redemption, that you, you're the one that starts our faith, that you're the finisher of our faith, and we simply are partnering with the work that you're doing in our heart. God, I pray that you help us um, question every shadow that we have in our life. Check to see if it's helpful and pointing us towards you. Watching that we don't use it as, a, a, as an umpire would to disqualify anyone else. But Lord, that you are our ultimate qualifier. And Jesus, as we see the joy and the thankfulness and the gratitude that pours from that type of reality, we will give you the thanks and the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.